What's Galentine's Day? Oh, it's only the best day of the year. Every February 13th, my lady friends and I leave our husbands and our boyfriends at home and we just come and kick it breakfast style. Ladies celebrating ladies. It's like Lilith Fair, minus the angst. Plus frittatas. Happy Galentine's Day, everyone. In the spirit of Galentine's Day, we wanted to take the opportunity to look back on some of our guests and hear their advice and insights into their inspiration for their public service work, why they focus locally, the value of community in their work, any advice they have for others in the field, parallels between their lives and Parks and Rec, we know there are many, their insights on leadership, other women who have supported them in their work, and any lessons they've learned. So not only can you hear these quotes in this episode, but you can also check out a written version of these quotes on our social media. You can do that by finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash WFW podcast. You can also find us on Twitter at WFW pod, or you can send us an email WFW podcast at gmail.com. So I myself was uh, born in Costa Rica. So I came to California when I was five. My family brought me. So I came when I was five and we overstayed our visa. So I was undocumented for a few years and then we got lucky and were able to apply for residency. So I'm very familiar with uh, the experience of being undocumented. And, you know, I'm I've always been very aware of, you know, who I who I was in my status and, you know, afraid about that. But I got really lucky and I went to Georgetown. It's a private school and they gave me a ton of money to go. So it was just a great experience. And I've always looked back and think, oh, gosh, I really did not use my time at Georgetown very well at all. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything, right? Who to talk to, what vinyls are, who to get help from. And I know a lot of college students don't know that either. But the difference is I didn't have anybody I could even ask, right, in my network. And it gives the inmates something to really get up for in the morning. And a lot of them have said, you know, I've lived my entire life and I've never really had anyone that's loved me like these dogs love me. And it's mm-hmm. just, I mean, it's heartbreaking, but at the same time, I, that's why we do this. Because, I mean, it not only does it benefit the dogs, but it benefits the inmates. So it really is a win-win. When I was a senior in high school, I sort of by accident got invited to this community forum about the future of education in Central Texas. They were gathering community member input to try to figure out sort of how could they better shape policy for the future. And it started out as this little neighborhood meeting. It was people from my school district meeting in like a middle school cafeteria talking about what is great about our school, what is not great about our school, how our school interacts with schools on the other side of town or doesn't interact with those, what could be better and how could the system be better. And it was the first time I had people really listen to my opinion and care about what I had to say. And because I was a high school student, that somehow made me an expert at the table. And so that was really cool to have all of these adults really value my opinion, they ended up then sending me on from our table to our like regional version of this conversation. And so to have that validated that I had opinions that were valuable to share sort of sparked something. 
And I think that libraries today, and even more so today, as we see the impact of social, the social justice and the inequities and disparities that are appearing in our day and age, that libraries are always the first responders. Um, they have always been, I think they will always be, the first responders to things that attack social justice and social equity and disparities among people in different communities. Um, so I think it is something definitely that in librarianship is something that is, I guess, innate because our values, our core value is about ethics, it's about equality. Because this type of work is fueled not on wonkiness or on political horse races. It's on personal stories that lead us to take action. And when my mom came out to me as having access to abortion care, I finally couldn't ignore the issue. I could not just view it purely in cold political lenses. I could only think of my mom when I engage in this work. I became an urban planner right after Hurricane Katrina because mm. to me, part of what I saw, my mom was a first responder at Hurricane Katrina and to her, she had done ground zero. She had done a number of natural disasters. And the thing that struck her the most, that was the hardest for her to get over is seeing how people suffered in Katrina was that it didn't have to happen, right? That there were a number of very clear decisions that were made about building an entire low-income African-American community below a levee that they knew that was going to break. You know, and so really what happened in Katrina was not a natural disaster, right? A hurricane is a natural disaster. But what happened um, in terms of the human costs and the, the impact that it had on the communities there, that was something that was very much an urban planning decision. Um, and to me, I decided to go into urban planning because I think so much of where we choose to invest and not invest in infrastructure and affordable housing and uh, improving our schools is a reflection of who we are as a society, who we do and don't care about who we think is and isn't deserving, and that we need to bring an equity approach and a social justice approach to urban planning. Every system are like adults telling them what to do and not really giving them a voice to direct what happens next at each stage. And so I think I've tried as much as possible to have it youth-centered decision-making, which can, you know, if a kid says like, well, I don't want to go back to school, it's kind of like, I'm not just going to be like, okay, great, that's our plan. Right. <laughs> no school ever again. But I think getting them to think through the decision-making process can be really helpful. And I don't know, I hate the word like empowering, but I just think that like it's, it's just giving them practice. I think that's what I learned from teaching is like the only way that kids, even the way we make decisions, we had to be trained how to make decisions that we do. And so just giving kids practice of weighing different options that are can have like a dramatic impact on their life, that usually adults are the ones like calling all the shots. I care a lot about Pittsburgh. And my seven-year-old son was born here. And in the work that I do, I think a lot about him and his friends and I think about the work that we do at the URA and our other public partners and I hope that we are building a city that they want to stay in. Mm. It, there weren't that many opportunities for me when I was growing up here. I didn't imagine it was a place that I could live in and thrive in, yet here I am living and thriving. I've been across the desk you know, from a homeless family, handwriting housing applications with them. 
I've experienced the pain of, you know, spending an hour handwriting housing applications. And I was actually doing it about 25 hours a week. And so I just was so frustrated and thought that there had to be a better way. Reading some of the stories is um, heartbreaking at times, but knowing that we were able to help that person really keeps me going. And we um, we have a nice little stockpile right now that we are going to uh, slowly release both on the website and our Facebook page as um, thank yous to our donors and supporters so that they can see the, the outcome of their support and that they really are making a difference. Uh, you know, and, and it, there are a lot of stories that are really straightforward. But even even the most straightforward ones are touching and moving. And, you know, there is almost always a common thread among all the stories. And there is always a unique aspect to each story. And those help me definitely uh, help keep me going. I was an international studies major in college, and I learned about all these conflicts and all these issues all around the world. And I felt like kind of like I couldn't do anything to help anyone because there are just so many issues and not enough mechanisms to do anything about it. So that's ultimately why I went to law school, because I realized that there were mechanisms that were in place already. There was a system in place that can get people justice and can get people remedies and can hold these huge entities with so much power accountable. So one of my proudest moments then becomes being able to really create and change government. So now in the city of Boston, there is a division, the Division of Youth Engagement and Employment, that is designed by and with young people that connects them to employment opportunities, free things to do and resources, civic engagement opportunities through the Mayor's Youth Council, and professional development opportunities. So not only are we connecting you with a job, but we're providing you with the skills and a chance to practice those skills before you start your first day of work. And it's not often that someone can say, I I left my mark on this government institution in that way, but my team and I were really able to do that, and it's probably one of the things I'm most proud about. What happened historically was when we focused on boys, we missed what was happening for girls. Mm -hmm. We know that girls are impacted by trauma at a higher rate than boys are. We know that girls respond to trauma differently than boys. We know that girls end up in the juvenile justice system for different reasons than boys do. Girls are incarcerated at higher rates for lower offenses than boys. Boys are usually arrested or incarcerated because they are actually a danger to our community. Girls are incarcerated because they're a danger to themselves. Mm -hmm. Girls usually get arrested because they violated probation. Violation of probation is usually because runaway, truancy, theft. It's usually not because they're a danger to the community. And so a lot of times I'm in the courtroom and judges are locking girls up because they want to protect girls for themselves. And so when we live in a society that is still focused and looking at girls from this lens of protection and patriarchy, Mm. we have to build systems that are different to respond to girls. I've always been fascinated with how cities work in general, but over time, I feel like there needs to be more of a conversation about just how Black folks create cities and how they're allowed to create cities. Yeah, so for me, in one sentence, it's because I never 
could figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I just kept doing things that were interesting to me. So I always thought being civically engaged and being a voter was very important. So I thought I would mainly be focused in the background around policy and probably supporting someone else who was an elected official. But as you get older and you realize that there are elected officials that are your age and even younger, you start realizing that your contributions do not have to really max out at voting. We can also be the candidates that we would like to be more enthusiastic about voting for. I decided to run or I decided to take on my seat because although we were doing great work as grassroots organizations, we also needed the support from grass tops or from elected officials. And working with policymakers and working with elected officials create effective change. Like we can't only depend on grassroots to agitate. We also need people on the top to create those policies and be our advocates on the inside in the system, right? It was difficult because it's about putting yourself in a position of vulnerability in doing that. And the benefit of that is you can have authentic, real conversations with people. And that's what stimulates change, being able to have those real conversations. But I'll tell you, it was a lot. It was very taxing and it's a mental thing. Every morning I used to get up and I used to have to tell myself, Rahila, today is the day you're going to get up, go out there, talk to people, do your best, and help someone out today. Today is a day you're going to help someone. Today is a day that you're going to try. I had a very moving moment. It was the when the a council that ran, got, uh, one of our, we actually are one of the few Canadian cities that has political parties, and a political party promised a bike lane on Burrard Bridge when the other party said, oh, no, that'll be political mm. suicide. I would never promise that. The the environmentalists won and they did put a protected bike lane on Burrard Bridge. And even though either end of the bridge was still unsafe at the time, the well, first time I rode it was a couple days after it opened because I was working. A couple of my coworkers had been there for opening day and they loved it. And I knew it was coming and I didn't expect it to hit me like it did when I was actually on it. And I, I was doing like a, like a happy cry, like a, like I couldn't help but shout like a while I was on it. Yeah. And I, it hit me that not only, uh, you know, did I, I, my safety mattered. I had been heard. Uh, and yes. for the first time, therefore I felt counted in my city. I was one of the people of the city that had been counted and, and seen. And I was very, I couldn't believe how moved I was. And I think our plan, I'm just in the process of writing for a VISTA volunteer. And our plan is to have that oh, person cool. actually record and document this whole process and to write down the things that we've done wrong and the things that we think have really worked with the intention of that, number one, someone could replicate what we've done here in, you know, another small town in Minnesota where they have a conservative government offices or, you know, whatever. But also the intention is to sort of put the spotlight on local government to say, really, we feel that you should be accountable for some of these services, but because you haven't done it, we'll take it on and and we can do it. And this is how we've done it. But I think in some way it lets people know, because I think everyday citizens in this community don't realize that we don't have anything going on from our public health 
They don't realize even that we don't have any services here that are targeted at youth and young adults. And I think if people knew that our tax money is at such a level that we just aren't really providing the basics, that maybe that would make a difference the next time there's an election. Yeah, I mean, we're stronger the more local we go, right? So you're going to be much more likely to be heard at your local town council meeting than you would be by your, you know, U.S. senator, right? So I think that a lot of the legislation, a lot of laws and policies that have the greatest impact on us are made at the local and state level, like far more than at the federal level. It's really sort of like our best interest is the interest of the city and the interest of the people living in the city. And that's, I mean, that's not to like try to feel morally superior to anybody, but just at the end of the day, I can go home and kind of feel like I've done something that's helping. You know, I would say the the best thing and the hardest thing about working in the local level is the same, which is that the issues you work on really affect people's day-to-day lives. And on the one hand, that's incredible because the opportunity to help fix a, you know, broken crossing symbol and make it easier for somebody to wheel their kid in a stroller across a crowded street, it doesn't get better than that. You're having such an impact on people's lives. The downside to that is every decision you make is really going to have an impact on somebody. It's not diffuse or um, read out, you know, I do feel like obviously the bigger slice of government you're looking at, the longer it takes to make the change inside. So, you know, I remember helping elect this woman, Donna Fry, to the San Diego City Council and her presence on the city council immediately having an impact on what was happening there. And then, you know, getting President Obama elected and then getting to D.C. and then getting everyone appointed and in their place. I mean, it's so massive that it it does take a lot longer. I mean, for me, always politics is local. And that's where really where it all starts uh, here at home. And I think at the end of the episode, she talks about or she's having this conversation with one of her staff or so. And she's like, but I was born here. I always thought I was born here. And and he goes like, listen, don't worry about that because it's not about where you're born, it's where you're from. And I thought that was like so telling because as an immigrant myself mm-hmm. that, you know, has lived in, in other places and was actually born and raised in a different place, I really have grown to love, you know, Los Angeles. And I feel like for a lot of us that live in LA, this is the reason why it's important for us to become part of the civic process. Because this is kind of like taking care of home. Because if you don't know who your electeds are, and if you don't know who are the decision makers that are moving and shaking on your behalf, and that are making decisions that are going to affect you every day, it's very problematic. And, you know, we happen to have had a Ferguson in 1967. And so all of those issues that are brought up related to police harassment, brutality, and all of the things that lead up to a community kind of rebelling against the oppression that they face are exactly what resonated in the city of Detroit. And so there is, you know, healing to do. There is an opportunity to have dialogue and courageous and an opportunity, especially with our children and young people, to help them learn about this history and to think about a vision 50 years from now, 
I think personally, the role that I serve here at the Communities Foundation is public service. And by engaging intimately with nonprofit organizations to understand exactly how they're impacting community allows me to take those relationships into other boardrooms like the United States Postal Service and like the city of Memphis and other foundational partners to say, here is what's happening in our community. So I then become um, that voice of the community through these organizations. And partnerships are so essential, especially in our community, because we are essentially strapped for resources. We have to work together and we have to learn from each other and we have to leverage the resources that we do have. I'd say that our community is really collaborative just by nature, which is really wonderful. And I, I feel really lucky to be a part of that community. Um, the other thing with like partnerships, I think it's kind of similar too. you know, traditionally you would have this big, large coalition with all the traditional players at the forefront of leading this. And you wouldn't really have, you know, just regular citizens who wanted to come together who aren't members of different organizations. And we had to really early on make the decision that we were comfortable with that, that we wanted to stand firm on that. And although we definitely wanted to work with other groups, we as citizens are able to bring this change together just as people who want to make change. But I think it's that engagement as a planner outside of your normal job responsibilities that makes being a planner great because it really is all about collaboration. And that's kind of where the show is going, bringing in the city planner to get him to collaborate on all these projects with the Parks and Recreation Department. Oh, that's so funny. You anticipated my next question. I was going to ask, what's your favorite oh, part of being a city planner? <laughs> yeah, I would say it's the collaboration, but it's also the continued learning. I mean, you're, mm. you know, we sit in our desk and we do our jobs every day, but there's so many different cities and examples and so many communities out there that are doing great things. And I think keeping current and getting those conversations going within the community is what makes being a planner so great. And so I always want to encourage folks to find their space and make their change there. So whether it's running for office, working for an elected official, I mean, the things that staff do for elected officials, I can tell you as a former staffer, are just as influential as the elected official themselves. There's so much work to be done. Only an office of people or a cohort of people can do it. One person doesn't do everything, whether that's activism or lobbying or what have you. So running for office isn't the only way to affect change. You know, change doesn't always come about so easily. And so you have got to like be in it for the long haul. And to really have, a, again, a crystal clear vision so that when the roadblocks come up, mm. that you don't give up. I talk a lot about in the vision work that I do with Vision Ventures that this reminder, and I coach myself on this every day, is to let go of how it looks. It's like the best piece of advice I got much later in life. And now I do my best to tell young people this all the time is that this would have saved me a lot of angst in the early years. But you know, as I say, many people are not connected to their vision. And then if, when they do get connected to their vision, get all excited about it, all fired up, start going after it. And then it's human nature to kind of map out in your mind, like how you're going to get there. And so you start going along a path and then it doesn't look like you thought it was going to look. Obstacles come and you give up. And I think that's that's where a lot of people 
uh, let go of their vision. Whereas if you knew in your heart of hearts that things never look like we think they're going to look, if you could remind yourself that, it would give yourself some more freedom to just be like, okay, that didn't work. Let me try a different way. Well, most of the women, like I said, are first-time candidates. So there's a lot of I didn't ever think that I was going to be a politician. Like this never entered my mind, you know, thinking that they didn't have enough experience or they were too young or needed to, you know, wait until they reached a certain career a place or their kids were older or, you know, something like that. But over and over again, I hear, I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad I just jumped in and did it. There's never a perfect time. <laughs> you know, I, I try to always ask, like, what's some advice that you would give a woman who's thinking about running for office? And I would say a good nine and a half out of 10 times, uh, the candidate says, just do it. Just like get over the fear and just go ahead and do it. Um, because there's never a better time than right now. So I'm happy to say just to help other young women run, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but we've done lots of different things that are hard, regardless of where you come from. And, you know, we got good advice that was outthink them, outwork them and outspend them. And I think at the end of the day, I just worked a lot harder than anyone else. We are more committed to our campaign and we just worked as hard as possible. And that's what we do for every part of our life. And we just committed. And so it's not rocket science. You know, I need a tax ID. Googled how to do that. I need to start raising money. You know, I read the FPPC, the, the ethics handbook online. So, you know, I think a lot of it is being nervous to jump in, but you just have to really do it and commit and know that you can do it. Have you ever seen the show The Tick? A long, long time ago. Well, he had this saying, it's like, leave before you look. And he'd always tell the sidekick, leave before you look. And he'd jump off a building and just, like, crash into everything. But somehow he would always save the day. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I tried to do the same thing. I just sort of go and smash into a vehicle. You know, whatever is in the way, we just collide. And after everything settles, usually it works out. <laughs> I don't want to say that I don't take no for an answer, but sometimes when somebody is discouraging, it's it's good to sort of take that criticism and think about it and sharpen your argument and sharpen your the direction you're coming at something and, and then go around and try someone else and try it again. I think this show actually does a great job of the community engagement process in community development or community planning. So yes, Leslie Nope is sort of this like hyperbolized version of a public servant and yes the community is supposed to be hyperbolized but honestly they're dead on like you do have a community meeting and you're an agency and you're like trying to get out there and you've got this great idea and you flyer all over and three people show up and the three people that show up don't want to talk about your park or your affordable housing they want to talk about parking and when their trash is going to be collected and that their mailbox fell over so like <laughs> That is all excellent. I suppose one of the hilarious parts is that we are often um, tapped as entertainment. Like when you have to pull off an event for, let's say, a holiday, you know, you have to go for the low-hanging fruit. So my husband <laughs> has been the Easter Bunny. 
<laughs> I have had to call in on many of favors. And I personally was in an amateur uh, go-go troupe called the Janes. And so the Janes were tapped to dance on multiple occasions for free, of course, at the park, one of which was the Valentine's Day. I love this episode. I don't, I don't, I had never seen this one, so I watched it twice. And I just feel like, just like her that, you know, why can't I go hunting? We should, I should be able and she knows what she's doing too, because she knew how to hunt. So growing up, I was that way. Yes. And also the forest service part of it, they're not going to tell you no, if you want to do something, it wasn't really hunting, but I did more of the prescribed fire burning, the burning, you know, because not as many women would go out and, and light a fire. I mean, I liked Parks and Rec long before I ever took this job, but I actually recently rewatched the entire series. And as I was watching it, there was definitely moments where I was just like, hey, I kind of live this in real life sometimes, uh, <laughs> which is awesome. But yeah, every time I see like Ron and Leslie and April and Andy and Tom, like Donna, everybody is just like, OK, this is a problem. we got to figure out how to fix it. We have two hours to do it. And then all of a sudden there's a solution. Like I've definitely been in that situation. And it is amazing what a smart group of people that are dedicated can get done uh, with very, very limited resources. I think that Leslie is an archetype in some ways to some of the women that we've uh, photographed and interviewed for Power in Place. Um, there's oh, wow. some, yeah, there's some like uh, I call it narrative threads that we see. Um, and we were just talking about role modeling and how she's an inspiration. And that's something that comes up a lot in Power in Place. Oh, an interesting thing is her mom's a politician. So we've had... We've had a lot of women whose parents were active, either their father or their mother. And so they're interested in politics as they've been around that their whole lives. And places of special meaning were chosen around that. For example, uh, Rosa DeLorio, uh, who's a congresswoman from Connecticut, chose this. It's basically a monument to her family. It's, it's uh, marble, but it's supposed to be a kitchen table in the square where her parents lived and it has inscriptions of, you know, some of their sayings. And I mean, she was really inspired by watching her parents be active. And so she's a congresswoman now. So that's something that we see. Another interesting thing about Leslie that we see is a lot of our women, they're really consensus builders and team players. But yeah, I think it is it is important to get engaged in the area that you're living in and helps you to meet new people and make new friends and learn about the place that you're calling home, even if it's just for a couple of years. But I think, well, I feel like I have a responsibility if I'm calling a place my home for a couple of years that I do something to to make it my home and I do something to make it better. So maybe that's very Leslie Nopey of me, but I, I do think it's really important. I don't bring binders to everything, but I used to. <laughs> <laughs> That was Tom doing some harm reduction right there. Right. That was. <laughs> exactly. I know you're going to get drunk, and that's okay. I'll meet you where you are and provide you services so that you can make that decision safely. Mm-hmm. That is us in a nutshell. Yes. That is the essence of harm reduction. Yes. Party if you're going to party, but be safe about it. Yeah, it's so funny that your podcast is inspired by Parks and Rec, because I think this campaign was a very Leslie Nope sort of thing you know there was something wrong that we really wanted to take on and we took it on using the democratic process and so i 
I do think that, you know, when you see something that you think, you know, should be addressed like this, that's harmful to women or to another group, for example, you know, the terrible things going on with immigration right now, you know, my advice would be to look for a way to produce an electoral strategy. I mean, this is just my personal belief that your power is in your vote. I think that there are some trends that are different between women and men in the way that they govern and organize things. I don't mean to make this sound super petty, but I think the beginning of the episode is actually one of the best examples of this, <laughs> despite the fact that they're talking about Tom's apartment and how nice it is. But they're like boutique eye cream, unisex cologne, lip exfoliator, chocolate covered almonds and a Sudoku book. Just amenities everywhere. I love amenities. I know. Amenities. I love amenities. <laughs> you know? And it's really about the details. So it's a little extra. Ah. It's thinking about that person and thinking about how that person during that time of their life, during that day, at that time of their life, you know, or that person with their sister and their grandma yeah. and their, you know, nephew and their whatever, or that person with their kid that broke their arm that, you know, is, is in second grade. I think that to me, all those little possibilities are what set apart people like Leslie and thinking about parks as opposed to management you'll mm -hmm. notice councilman pilsner and he's like okay i'll change your budget i'll take this from this and put this over there and blah 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 you know i'll close the shelter down i'll do the thing and then all the you know again i hate stereotyping like this but there are some studies about this right all the women are like the animals oh my god yeah <laughs> what are we gonna do we have to save them <laughs> and I think it's not just a gender specific thing to have compassion for other human beings. But I think I find in these kinds of roles, the women really step forward and are taking care of people mm. and the situation. When I was first working in the state legislature, I actually worked for two amazing women, Senator Regala and Senator Frazier. Senator Frazier was uh, actually the chair of the International Caucus is what they call it, who, you know, does a little bit of the trade stuff, talks about, like, you know, how Washington impacts the rest of the world. And then Senator Gallo was the whip. And so because of the two women who I got to really, you know, see different perspectives from, I also got to work with, uh, at the time, she was House of Representatives member Velma Valoria, and then also Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos. And both of them kind of helped me to understand some of the trafficking issues because I was working on the International Caucus with Senator Frazier. And then I started to fall into a lot of the Asian Pacific American organizing alongside you know, the organization that Sharon and Velma helped to start, which was NAPOP, the National Asian American Pacific American Women's Forum. And so they were working on trafficking issues. They were working on things like gender. They were working on things, um, you know, that were trying to make sure that there was social justice and social awareness. And so, you know, these were all really amazing experiences for me. And I really found some mentors. So Young Women Run was this totally nonpartisan event. You had people like Democrats, Republicans or otherwise all together in one location for two days. And we also had a variety of speakers, ranging from House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi and her daughter, Christine, to Republican Congresswoman Mary Bono. And what they had to say to us as women looking to make a difference was equally inspiring. 
but it was actually pretty empowering being in this group of people knowing that we couldn't be more ideologically different, but we still had something in common. We were all women who wanted to make a difference in our communities, and that gives me hope kind of looking at the state of politics and policy-making processes today. I also think that speaks to why we need more women in public office. Um, we bring that cooperation to the table, and we get stuff done. That so many women that, that I admired would say yes and would want to take the time and share. That was just such an empowering process for that interview, that they would take the time out of their schedules and with my podcast, there was some research involved and they took it so seriously and that they would do something. And it was just an honor to work with these women and to have everyone truly share their passion. One of the programs of She Should Run is our Ask a Woman to Run program, where you nominate a woman that you know. You can nominate yourself to run, but it's really incredible the number of women that have been nominated to run, the incredible stories and messages that people have shared of why they think this woman they know should run. And so I had my own experience of that, of a woman who was uh, the first woman elected to city council here in Arcata. And she was first elected in the 70s um, as a young woman and then went back years later to serve um, on the city council. And she was not going to be running again. And so I had been very involved in the community at this point. I'd been working for the state legislature and working on community issues and really loving it. And uh, she was someone that came to me and said, you know, I'm not going to be running again. And I think you would be great. Um, would you consider it? And so having someone that I really respected who had done incredible work in our community to see that in me definitely was incredibly inspiring and uh, helped me move in that direction. So I think the power of asking a woman to run, um, I think we shouldn't be afraid to nominate ourselves and raise our own hands. But I think the more we can let other women know that we respect that you're an incredible leader and you should run for office, it really can make a big difference. The women around me kept telling me, not only is this something you should do, this is something you can do. And the love of your friends and all of the relationships in your life just really made more things seem possible. And I wish that we had this kind of terminology when I was coming up just to have the words to say, I feel like this and I don't know what this means. And does it make me weird that I get really down? So, you know, like those kinds of things. And yeah. in your adulthood, going back and trying to figure out the different traumas and the mistakes that you made just from not having that healthy sense of self. So I know for me personally, it's so important for me being a part of the team to help these girls to discover who they are and to love who they are and to walk in it confidently, especially as women of color, especially with the state of the world <laughs> these days. Mm. It's just so important. We have to go where black women are and make sure that yeah. this information is accessible because so many of the women that we have talked to across the country, they said one of their biggest challenges of why they have not participated in the process is because they don't even know where to start. So, you know, we thought we would go to them where they are and uh, make sure that they are able to access information about where to vote, when to vote, uh, if they're thinking about running for office, getting connected with resources and trainings and other networks that can help support them. And then also just, you know, 
support each other. Everybody has a role to play. We say all the time. It's just a matter of figuring mm. out what your role is. We're a great team, and I'm very, very grateful that we work well together. We trust each other. We produce good work and just like each other as people in addition to as colleagues. And I think if we didn't have all of those pieces together, we might not be where we are today. Yeah, messaging is so important. One thing that I really love is the leader of my school, Trish Flanagan. She's so awesome. And what she's done is she's come into a community of people who really did uh, just, you know, as Catherine said, had those feelings of, of mistrust. And, you know, even we see this all the time across this state in particular in Arkansas and different places where people have done work. They have been you know, had some people say, oh, yes, we want to invest in you, especially we see that in the Delta communities mm -hmm. a lot and in small towns where, you know, somebody comes in and they say, oh, you know, we're going to provide these, these services or this these opportunities and whatever. And then their hope is built up and then it's shattered or nothing becomes of it. And then there's almost this feeling of, well, this is how it's always going to be. Nothing's going to change. And when people come in speaking that same language, then they it's very off-putting to them. Like, oh, no, I've heard this before. Yeah, we know you're kind. And you're not from here either, so yeah. we definitely don't want to listen to you. And then by the same token, there are people who you think who are supposed to be on your team, just like in the show, her supervisor, there are people who you think are supposed to be on your team who are part of the community too. And behind the scenes, they have the same attitude as the people whose doors you just tried to knock on. And it's because whether we realize it or not, no matter if people are in leadership or if they're, you know, the family next door, a lot of people share those same feelings, whether they uh, are vocal about it or not. And it's up to us to not only make sure that we are authentic in who we are and be very open and vocal about our motives and about the work that we're trying to do and really bringing people in, but also making sure that people have a comfortable space to be heard and that you really do ask those powerful questions where people think about and reflect on what are they trying to do and what does this mean for me? You know, what was really interesting was I had sent an email to both the school board member and the alder person and got no response. And I, you know, then I thought to myself, okay, they're a little bit older. They were, you know, in their seventies, late sixties, early seventies. Mm -hmm. I'm like, they're probably a little more old school. So I wrote out like a long letter and then mailed it to each of them. And they both responded right away. Like really oh, a letter. Wow. So I, you know, I realized at that point that I have to kind of meet people where they are, whether it's my students on Snapchat and Instagram or, you know, my <laughs> residents on paper. As important as direct service is and trying to impact and reach a number of people, when you're trying to think about scale and what is the best way that a small number of people can really impact a large number of people who are living with a disease, policy is a great mechanism to do that. And I think that's also where I began to think about balance. And mm. although I love this work, although I'm passionate about this work, understanding what I need to give my energy to and understanding that taking care of self is really important. And spending time with those you love, in my case, spending time with my daughter is 
very important to me. And, and now a priority where it probably wasn't a priority before, sadly to say, but it was because I wanted to let it be known that I was dedicated to this career and dedicated to this passion. But now I know that I can't do that without also being dedicated to myself and dedicated to those that I love or the things around me that I also love. Biking is one of the things that is a hot button because we don't do a good job of talking about the racial baggage and the economic baggage that, that America has. I think we have to begin to talk about these things so that we do projects that are designed to make communities more livable, allow us to lead a healthier lifestyle, quote unquote, to live a, a smaller footprint. And through it, the thing that I found is that, you know, people do like Congress better overall when they see a bipartisan coalition pass a bill. And they still like that more than seeing their own party pass a bill. Like they still say they have more confidence in Congress in that circumstance. So that's one important point. Like these things do make a difference for whether people think Congress as an institution is working. After I let people know what was going on, I got like letters from strangers and like Facebook messages from strangers saying like they had been dealing with mental health issues for their entire life, but they had never talked to anybody about it and they never sought any help for it. I remember there was one day I was just sitting at my dining table crying because I got this letter. It was just a card from someone that was like, just said, thank you for being open. I've had X whatever issue for years and I've never gone to see a therapist because I was too scared, but I just today made my first appointment to go see a therapist so I can get help with it. That was kind of when I realized that I could make a bigger impact by just being honest and like telling my story than by trying to do all of this extra stuff and pushing my limits so, so intensely. And I think one thing that I really learned from the project was the value in both the quantitative survey and, and device-based data, but also the value of the qualitative data, the richness of data from focus groups where you were asking people, you know, how did they use some of these devices? What did they think about questions that we were asking on our survey? How were they actually using their environment for physical activity? That really has helped us in many ways to think about how we would develop and design an intervention in the community. It's been about looking for other people who are self-starters versus supporters. Mm. A lot of students want this information, are going to come to all of our meetings, but are still shaky on how to turn it into a career, turn it into a resume builder. So it's just about finding students who see the longevity in it and who see the potential for their own personal growth within our organization and within the drug policy community as a whole. And I, I've seen that spark in multiple of my students. Yeah, I think just as standing across the threshold from somebody is the best way to convince one of your neighbors, I think showing up in force where a public official can see you is the best way to convince them, um, especially here in Chicago, where all politics are really, really hyper-local. February 14th, Valentine's Day, is about romance. But February 13th, Galentine's Day, is about celebrating lady friends. 
It's wonderful, and it should be a national holiday. It should be a national holiday. Dear Congress, it's Leslie again.